Welcome back to the Pathway Podcast. In this week's episode, lead pastor Jeremy Flanagan explores the meanings of dead faith and saving faith. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. And, uh, you know, I I hope you, uh, if you've been here the last few weeks as we did uh, a series at the beginning of James, and now you're here today as we start this new series and kind of get going. You know, as a staff, we plan these sermons out. We've had this kind of lined out for, I don't know, six months or so, but every so often things happen and, you know, God moves and, and I call an audible and go somewhere different. And, you know, a few minutes into the fourth quarter last night, we were about to be in Joshua chapter seven. If you don't know the story of Achan, you can go there, you can read it out, but we're about to line your families up one by one and see which of you had LSU gear in your house. It wouldn't turn out well for you, but uh, luckily they pulled it out. You're all safe, and we're still in the book of James. So uh, anyway, but hopefully you had a good weekend. Uh, it was uh, nice outside, hopefully one of the last you know, 90-degree Saturdays that we have, but uh, still yet beautiful to be outdoors. And we are in the book of James and, and going through it, and kind of where we've been the last few weeks, uh, really when we look at this book, it kind of broke itself up into three parts, and If you were here for these sermons, I want you to understand this, that James chapter one was nice James. That was the nice part of the book of James. And if you were here for them, you realize that it didn't feel very nice, right? That he goes after you hard. But today we start talking about dead faith. He is probably, now he is easily the most challenging writer in the New Testament that really tries to hit us where it hurts and just pierce us to the soul and to call other fellow believers, right? That's who he was talking to. He wasn't writing this to people who didn't believe in Jesus. He was writing it to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who, were, who specifically were Jews, right? So people who were Jews, but accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was writing to them and calling them out for so many different things. For every two verses in the book of James, there's one command, about to do this or don't do this. Uh, it, is, it is that straightforward. Um, and so what we are looking at in the book of James, we started in, in the, the first series about what God's wisdom reveals. Now we're in the middle in dead faith. And then uh, the last series uh, here in a while is gonna be wisdom as our judge and God. Just to remind you about what God's wisdom reveals, here are the three things we looked at. Right? Nice James is number one, that wisdom comes to those ready to follow what God says. If you're not ready to follow what he says, why ask for wisdom? And if you're just looking at what God says as an option to choose from, don't expect him to give it to you. And so then fighting temptation is about confronting our desires. Yeah, the scripture tells us that we have to battle against Satan. We have to you know, withstand pressures from the people around us. But in the end, we are fighting our own desires because if something isn't a, a sinful desire of your heart, you're not tempted by it. There's so many temptations that other people struggle with that I don't. But my temptations, they they get after me hard. And so, and then lastly, that truly loving God is responding to what we see in the mirror, right? Not whether our hair is fixed or we have something on our teeth, but that scripture serving as a spiritual mirror to try and reveal to us who we truly are. Do we truly reflect a flawed always, right? But do we truly reflect any image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the book of James starts by telling us, you know, what God's wisdom reveals in us. 
right? How it helps us see what our desires are that mess us up. It helps us see who we are and what reflection we're giving to others. It helps us understand that God wants to teach us what to do in life, but if we're not ready to follow, why ask, right? If we're not ready to say yes to God, then why ask for wisdom? And so those are all the things that God's wisdom reveals about us. And then you get to chapter two, and that's where we are with dead faith. Now, next week, we're really gonna jump into it, but I wanna share James chapter two and verse 14. And this is kind of the verse that encapsulates this whole idea of dead faith. And it says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Now, next week, the week after that, we're gonna spend a lot of time digging in to not just the book of James, but other scripture to look at what is salvation, right? How do you balance what James says here in verse 14 of chapter two with the idea that salvation is by grace through faith? Because salvation is by grace through faith. It is not of works. We do not work to earn salvation. We cannot work to keep our salvation. We can't do enough good things in life to deserve salvation. The scripture is very, very clear through all of that. And so the next two weeks, we're really gonna dig into explaining how James and all the rest of scripture agree with each other. They don't conflict. But he is trying to get it across to these Jewish believers, or at least these Jewish people who say they're Christians. He's trying to get it across to them that some of you have placed your faith in Jesus and he has set you free. And in your freedom, you're deciding to not live for him. And, and that isn't okay. There is no one who can read the book of James and come away thinking that it is okay for us to accept that free gift from Jesus Christ and then do nothing about it. That, that is not acceptable to James and it shouldn't be acceptable to us, but that's really what we're gonna dig into. However, before he starts just hammering that idea of dead faith, he goes to one example to get us started. And trust me, he's gonna talk about a lot of different things over the next few weeks as we go through this. But the first example he uses to start talking about, is your faith what James would call dead or is it alive, is the way we treat other people. So in James chapter two and verse one, it says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? And so James gets started here. And when he's talking about the subject of dead faith, his first question to them is, how do you treat other people? How can you claim to have the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? So it's not even completely the idea of being intentionally cruel to other people. It's just showing favoritism in the way that you show kindness or love or 
just uh, in, in the way that you interact with individuals based on your preference instead of the fact that you should love them as God loves them, right? Now, when you look at this story and, and you look at this idea of, of what was happening, he talks about someone coming into their meeting. And if you think he was writing to Jewish people and so to them, it kind of a synagogue worship. And in that type of room, sometimes they would have a, a couple of benches up front. Sometimes they would have them around the outside of the room and the rest was standing or sitting room only, right? And who got to sit in the rows? Well, we're in a Baptist church, so here, only John. So no one sits on the front row, right? Sometimes, sometimes we do. There's all these cards out there and they're just sad and lonely. But, you know, back then, if you were rich, if you were a leader, if you were one of the kind of upper echelon within their religious system, which also meant that you had money and it also, you know, it meant a lot of different things, right? Within the Jewish culture, if God was blessing you financially, it also meant that you were then somehow spiritually superior. That was kind of the aberration that they had gotten to that Jesus preached against in the disciples. And so the front couple of rows were filled up with the, the aristocrats, right? The higher ups. And then maybe then if you were, I don't know, middle of the road, you got to get some of the seats on the outside, but then everybody else, just the regular folk, got to sit in the middle. So see, scripture is very clear. First come, first serve, is, it's, a, it's a biblical concept. Um, like I said, we did Baptist potlucks, uh, and that fixed the problem in Corinthians with the Lord's Supper meal. Um, we have solutions to all these problems. But they were having the issue within their culture, within Jewish culture, it was ingrained in them to look at the people who were prosperous and the people who were powerful and the people who were wealthy and to elevate them. You know, and, and sometimes I, I, I was a teenager and as you are a teenager and there's someone maybe a little older, someone, you know, popular that you want them to like you and then hopefully you can become, you know, more popular. You can be around those people. We all have people we want to try and impress, Right. And uh, the older I get, the, the much, much less I care about that. But there are times in life that we all do that, that we have people that we want to impress. Whatever they have, whatever status they have, whatever stature they have, we want some of that, right? And since we don't know of a way to get it ourselves, we just try and get close. We just try and latch on. And that usually doesn't really work out for you. I've, I've seen people, and it, it was... You know, you could tell that they just desperately wanted to be accepted. And they would stay around people who, you know, treated them horribly. And they would put up with it because they wanted the acceptance of these people that they viewed as above them. When in reality, what they needed to understand is that in the sight of God, whoever loved other people was the one who was being elevated, right? But we don't get that as people. We don't get that as humans. As humans, our nature takes over and we view people that have what we think we want. It's not just what we think we want, it's what we want, right? It's what we want at that point in that time in our lives. And we try and emulate that, we try and get close to that, so some of it will you know, rub off on us. That's not a healthy way. And these Christians who were believing in Jesus Christ um, were still acting that way. They were still living within that culture, within that religious and, and also just general culture that fostered that way of treating people. 
that you elevate those who are already elevated so that maybe they will pull you up with them instead of just treating everybody the same. You know, he goes in verse seven and he says, aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Right, there were plenty of rich people who provided their homes and everything else for Christians to meet in. But to these Jewish people he was talking about, about the way they were sitting in their meetings and everything else, those people in the front rows, right, who they knew were the religious leaders in the Jewish synagogue, those were the same ones who were having them thrown in jail for believing in Jesus, right? Those people in society, those people were the same ones who were hurting them. And so again, this isn't really a rich and a poor kind of thing. It's, but in the Jewish culture, it, it was more so because those in the upper level of society were also the ones persecuting Christians, trying to hold on to their status, hold on to their power, hold on to their place, hold on to their front row tickets. They still wanted that, and so they persecuted other Christians. And James is saying, you have believed in Jesus Christ, but yet you're still living under this old way where you're not loving everybody as Jesus loved, where you're not treating people the same compassion. You know, I, I told the story a couple of weeks ago about me and my dad sitting in the mall bored to death and him teaching me not to only try and break ankles with rolling pennies, and we quit doing that when the guy almost fell, but, but then watching people and just seeing people and watching how they interact and everything else. And, and you can do that. You can sit and you can watch people and you can see what they do. And, you know, people always ask, you know, with our church van, it's just a, a white church van and everything. So are we ever going to get our name on it? No, I drive it. I don't want to see, if I speed, I don't want anybody to know it's from Pathway. If we do, I'll get those magnets and I'll throw on, I don't know, I'll throw on a UBC or a cross church or something and I'll go fast. And then when I have the trailer on and your kids are in there and I'm going the speed limit, I'll throw Pathway on. But we're not gonna get permanent letters. So, you know, when you think about how we portray ourselves to others, which James talked about last week, and you think about the idea of how we treat other people, I want you to understand that you may not realize how you're treating others, but other people see it. The person you're treating horribly, or at least not treating with kindness, they see it. They definitely see it, right? But other people do too. You know, it, uh, there's always funny times, and um, you know, if you've ever been a parent of a, of a young child, you know, there are times at Walmart that you portray the, the worst of, of humanity. Because why? Because you have a toddler. And that brings out the absolute worst in you. One time it was, uh, we were eating on a, uh, on a Sunday afternoon and uh, this was back when we first started. Luke was like two or three. He was a horrible toddler. He, he really, really was. I love the boy with all my heart, would give my life for him. Absolutely horrible toddler. Uh, and so we were eating lunch and we were at El Chico. I think that's why they shut the restaurant chain down. But we were eating El Chico and Clint Feltz was there. He was in college. He was our worship pastor at the time. And, and Luke was being his normal toddler self and throwing things and everything else. And then at one point he reaches over and he bites Jessica's arm. Just, just, I mean, like broke flesh, bit her arm. And she stood up and yelled and just grabbed him and like lifted him over. And as in a deep growling voice as this little five foot three blonde woman could do, said, tear him in half. <laughs> and handed him to, Clint, handed him to me. And uh, 
I don't know who is more scared, Luke or, or Clint. But uh, I did my job as a dad and I took the boy in the bathroom. And anyway, he was already traumatized, so I didn't spank him that much. But I always think of that. Anytime I think about, you know, that when you're in front of people and sometimes some, some things happen and we're upset that day or we're angry that day or we're in a bad mood and we treat people poorly. Those things happen. They do, they're gonna happen. I would say it'd be good if you could go back to those individuals you upset and you apologize. There was no apology from Jessica Luke, none whatsoever, not at that time. Um, but do we actually treat people bad constantly and maybe we just don't realize it? Maybe we excuse it. Maybe we see the way we treat others and we justify it. James goes on in verse eight and he says, yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the rule of laws found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law for the person who keeps all of the laws except one is guilty, is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. And he's saying, and if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, then you've still broken the law even though you haven't committed murder or adultery, right? Breaking the law is breaking the law, but we justify the way we treat people in our own mind in such a way at times that we don't see it, that we don't realize it. Hopefully, if you've killed someone, you think about it, right? But when we treat people without love or without kindness, we can block that out a lot easier. And so James is talking to them here and he, and he tells this and he tries to bring all of that out to them. And the whole idea is back to the, the, the saying of to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, last time that I preached on this passage, we did a month-long series about loving your neighbor. And shortly thereafter, we got shut down and no one could see their neighbor for a long period of time. So that was in late 2019. So hopefully it doesn't happen again. But we did a series talking about loving your neighbor and I brought out some statistics back then just in the way that we interact with people and who we think of as our neighbor. Just a few facts. Around 5% of people know all their neighbors, like physically around you. 25% know most. 58% only know some. And 11% of us don't know a single neighbor who lives next door to us, right? Um, almost 60% of people never get together with their neighbors. And then I always love this one because you feel like, you know, in small towns and stuff, everybody knows everybody. And trust me, I grew up in a town of about 2,000 people. Everybody knew everybody. But it didn't mean that you actually did anything together, right? And that people in rural areas know more of their neighbors, but are just as unlikely to interact, I mean, I'd see them on the road. We all waved at each other. You know, we would see each other at the store and so we would know who people's names were, but we didn't necessarily spend time with anyone. Well, in the, in the book of Luke, there's a, a period and a moment when Jesus and his ministry was constantly being questioned by Jewish religious leaders. And one of these occasions, this religious leader was trying to trip Jesus up, right? That was his point. He was trying to ask Jesus a question and either have Jesus leave something out so he could say, aha, see, you don't know the scripture that well, or find something that Jesus would add to the law or that contradicted it to say, aha, you are, you're messing up God's law. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, 
It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to the test, uh, stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? So this guy's trying to test Jesus, right? Trying to trip him up. And so Jesus just throws this question right back at him. And the man answered, this was his idea of what it takes to have eternal life. And he said in verse 27, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. And the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So this isn't the only place that we see this scripture addressed. Right, or this idea addressed within scripture. This isn't the only scripture that talks about loving our neighbor, but it's the one that I like because you have this person trying to test Jesus. You know, so far today we've read where James says that if you're not loving your neighbor, then what kind of faith is that? This man questions Jesus and about what it takes to have eternal life. Jesus says, you know, what do you think it does? And this guy says, I gotta love my neighbor as myself. And when Jesus says, all right, there we go. Then the man says, and who is my neighbor, right? He wanted to qualify the question. He wanted to qualify the question so then he could check off the box so then he could feel good that he loved his neighbor. So in essence, he wanted to find the limits, right? He wanted to find the limits, find the little small box of who his neighbor is so he could take care of them and, and love them and be okay, which means that he doesn't really have to worry about anybody else. Right? And that's what I'm afraid that sometimes that we do as we go through this life is that we try to maybe pour into those handful of relationships that I hate to say it, that we want to get something out of. Or we're trying to pour into that handful of relationships that actually matter to us. And then if we do that, okay, then we just don't worry about the rest. And I've been guilty of it times, but I, I know other, other people that I've seen that, uh, you know, that, some people around them, they treat really nice and everybody else, they're just kind of nasty to. And hopefully we're not that way uh, except on the occasions when our toddler bites us on the arm. But we're all susceptible to just picking the people we want and that we like, trying to treat them with love and then not really caring about the rest. So instead of asking Jesus, how do I love my neighbor as myself? He said, so tell me who it is. Now, within the Jewish concept of loving your neighbor, it was more in line with what Paul talked about in Romans 13. And they would take this scripture and this, this idea that he gave very, very well. But, it, you know, people then, even Christians, could still try and limit what their love looked like. In Romans 13 and verse 8, Paul told people, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. I mean, Paul is very, very accurate here, right? But some of these Jewish Christians and us today can even still take those words and say, all right, loving our neighbor means doing no harm. Right? It means doing no harm to them. As long as we don't harm anybody else, then we have loved our neighbor. But that, no, Paul is just trying to spell a few things out there, just like James is doing. 
But what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 12, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. You know, so the golden rule to us, doing to others, right? That whole idea. You're like, well, what I want other people to do is just leave me alone. So I'm gonna leave everybody else alone. I have fulfilled the golden rule. But that's not what God calls us to. We can take any bit of scripture and we can twist it, massage it, and then forget the rest of scripture, right? To create whatever small little box we wanna fulfill. So you can take James and, or, and, and go one direction. You can take Paul and say, I just don't need to do any harm. You can take even the words of Jesus and say, well, if I just do unto others, that means I'm gonna leave them alone, they leave me alone. That's not what scripture calls us to. That's not what God calls us to. He, does, he calls us to do more than live alone. God can sustain us on his own, but he designed us in a way that we function best and we find fulfillment in each other. The encouragement, building each other up, holding each other accountable, pushing each other to do more in our, in our life and living for God and in serving him. God calls us to love our neighbor, not to just stay where we are, not to just pick and choose the ones that are important to us and forget about everybody else. Definitely not to have a blind eye, right? And turn the spiritual mirror around when we wanna treat other people horribly, when we wanna treat other people without, with, you know, without kindness and then blame them for it for some reason. No, God calls us to love everyone. And James pointed out that the fact that he couldn't see that in a lot of their lives made him question whether or not their faith had much meaning at all. Next couple of weeks, we really dive into dead faith, right? And we're gonna really dig in scripturally. We're gonna look at a whole lot. I wanna make sure that no one leaves here ever thinking that you have to be a good person to go to heaven. If, if that's the rule, then we're all going to hell, period. I never want anyone to ever leave here thinking that you have to be good enough or do enough to go to heaven. Because if that's the rule, then it's gonna be a straight shot down for all of us, right? That is not salvation. However, your faith is meant to be more than a ticket to heaven. Your faith is meant to be more than simply you saying, I believe in Jesus, you believing in Jesus and trusting that he is who he said he is and that he did what he said he'll do and that you believing in him means that, that he, will, he will give you a place to live in eternity. That's all it takes to be saved. But your faith should mean more than that. It should reflect Jesus better than that. And so that's what James is going for. And in verse 12, he says, so whatever you say or whatever you do, Remember that you'll be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Now again, we're both set free and still yet, God is, is looking at what we do, right? He pointed out, Peter pointed out, others pointed out throughout scripture that Salvation should not be as it talks about a covering for evil. It should not be a free ticket to live as we want in a sinful way. Salvation is that free gift to us that should change us in such a way that we wanna give as much as we can back to God. 
And we want to show his love to as many people so that they too will come to know Jesus as their savior. You know, in John chapter three, as we close up this morning, John chapter three, when it talks about how God loved us, right? When God loved us, it says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And in verse 17, it says that God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus as your savior, there are gonna be areas of your life that you look at and you say, I don't deserve him. And you're right, I don't either. No one here does. You may feel that you need to get things fixed and you may need to get things right before you can trust in Jesus. That's not how it works. God's offer to us is while we are still sinners, right? That's when Christ died for us. All of this today that is just hitting people saying, if you're not loving people, then your faith doesn't even look real. That was written to believers. That was written to people who believed in Jesus Christ already. So if you're here and you're still struggling with whether or not to trust that Jesus can save you or will save you, it has nothing to do with how good of a person you are. It has everything to do with you just trusting in his gift because God loved you and he sent his son and all you have to do is believe in him and you'll have everlasting life. That's it. So if you're here today and you've never made that decision, I want you to choose him today. As our worship team comes forward and we prepare for a time where we have a response. If you are here and, and, and you haven't made that decision and you wanna talk to someone about it, I'll be standing over here worshiping. I would love to talk to you. But if you're one of these believers that James was writing to, right? If you're one of these people who you believe in Jesus Christ, your eternity in, in heaven is secure, you're going there and everything else. He's asking you the same question that he asked them, that he asks me. Does your faith show Right? Does your life show? Does that spiritual reflection show something that's living? Or does it just look dead? God wants our life to mean more than just a ticket to heaven. And the first step that James brought up was how do we treat other people? How do we treat others?